Welcome to Season 2, Episode 7 of Song Chronicles. Our special guest on today's episode is singer-songwriter, recording artist, guitarist, and producer Aaron Lee Tajdan. Aaron began teaching himself guitar at 11. At age 16, he wrote a song for his school's Columbine Remembrance event that got the attention of Peter Yarrow of Peter, Paul, and Mary who loved it so much that Peter invited Aaron to perform with him. Aaron was offered a scholarship to Berklee College of Music, but he only stayed in Boston one semester before moving to New York to get on with the business of living the dream making music. It was here that he was encouraged by some of his heroes and had the good fortune to be introduced to Justin Tranter, where they formed the glam rock band Semi Precious Weapons, whose debut album was produced by Tony Visconti. He then spent three years playing lead guitar with the New York Dolls. Since 2013, Aaron has been living in Nashville, focused on songwriting and his genre-defined work as a solo artist. His songwriting can be heard on recordings by Pat Green, Yola, B.P. Fallon, and J.D. McPherson. I spoke to Aaron back in February, right after the release of his fantastic new album, Tajdan, Tajdan, Tajdan. In this conversation, we talk about what makes rock and roll work, how to find community as a musician, and what songwriting has to do with sewing. There you are. Hello. Nice to meet you. It's nice to meet you, too. Thanks for having me. Oh, I appreciate it. I realize you just put this record out a couple weeks ago. Yeah, it's like three weeks old, I guess. <laughs> yeah. How has it been for you doing this? Because you put out so many records before, but doing this during a pandemic, is it just a weird change? No touring and all that? Yeah, no touring is tough. I mean, the pandemic, you know, it's conquered, unfortunately, a lot of what... uh I would normally, what the sort of ways you would judge a record on what its success is or whatever, there's really none of that. So it's great in a way. I mean, you know, you don't really expect anything at all. And then if something does happen, that's that's cool. But I feel like a lot of people are living their lives that way now. You just keep going. The longer this goes on, it's just kind of like, well, uh, I guess I'll change my expectations again. So, you know, I'm pretty good at managing that kind of stuff. But I think this has been really hard on anybody. I don't care who you are. Yeah. I mean, the new rule set seems to be you woke up, you're healthy, you're alive. Do what you do out of love. Give it to people. Share it with people. Feel good about what you've done. And, you know, deadlines don't really matter. Nobody's right. The new something to drop, you know. And yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That seems to be the way to go, too. In spite of all that happening right now, you've just been working so much. You're a badass guitar player. I mean, you can play jazz. You have a huge range of what you can do. And 
clearly you're sticking to what you love. There was definitely a lot of music in the house, you know, growing up and a love of music, you know. So even the parts of my thing that I think were hard to understand sometimes for my parents, like we still had this love of, of this common love of music, you know, where we could still come together on that, which was awesome. It seems like the arts were very much a part of your support system growing up. I found it interesting that you turned down um, going to Berkeley because I suppose a lot of parents would just go, oh, you know, got a scholarship and not going because people love to brag about their kid going to college, you know? Oh, sure. You know, what's funny. I actually did go. I went for six months. I went for one semester. And it just, that's not the place I was in in my life, you know? And I think learning, that's a two-way street and you have to be, you know, you have to be open to it. And, you know, I went to ear training class one day and the guy was like, we're going to talk about the blues. And he put on an Eric Clapton record and I was just like, nope, I'm, this is, I have no interest in this at all. <laughs> I, I wish that I did, but I don't. And I would much rather move to New York and try to figure out how to make a living playing music now. Because I felt like I could go get a college degree anytime that I wanted, but I had a limited amount of time to get a start on, you know, building a career that could, you know, hopefully last me for, you know, well, I'd love if it lasted for my whole life, but sometimes these things you don't have any control over. So, but as long as I can take the ride, I wanted to be on it. And, and I thought that moving to New York when I was 19, I, I really just was ready to get into it and, and get going. And, and I did, you know, I dove right in there and, and I met all the really cool New York musicians and <laughs> hung around those guys and probably annoyed the crowd. <laughs> out of them I'm sure but they were really nice you know and as as far as you know by New York standards yeah I'd written a song that my school had a week of peace on the anniversary of Columbine to try and and promote that sort of awareness amongst the students that everybody's going through something you know on their own and we got to be there for each other as much as we can and let's let's try not to focus on each other's differences mm -hmm. and separate each other because of that you know and so I wrote a song that was kind of about that and somehow it got to Peter from Peter Paul and Mary <laughs> yeah I was, I was I was 16 years old and my parents were just losing their minds because they yeah. thought like Peter Yarrow was like Madonna like as far as <laughs> I was concerned you know so yeah and he's he's an activist and he would be into that kind of a subject matter, it would seem, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was cool meeting him, you know, and he'd talk about how upsetting it was to him that people thought that Puff the Magic Dragon was about marijuana, you know? I mean, he really wasn't coming from that place with it at all, you know? It was it really... It was not a drug song? Not even close. He was furious that people considered it that, you know, and just wanted to offer, you know, a loving song about childhood, really, you know, and isn't it interesting how people perceive things and oftentimes it's not at all in sync with what the artist intended. Yeah, projection is a major thing. I could not agree more. Yeah, never <laughs> underestimate the power of projection on any situation. Hard to know what's in people's minds, you know, what ingredients they're adding to any situation. Sure. Exactly. And, and I think in that way, it, it kind of invites you to give people the benefit of the doubt and not take it so personally. You know, it's probably more about them than it is about you, in other words. You know what I mean? Yeah, almost always. <laughs> yeah. And so I wrote a song and somehow it got to Peter. Uh, Peter loved it and I played with him 
a few times. But yeah, I was I was 16 years old. So, I mean, you're a producer yourself and the stuff that you've done, it's just got great references. And I don't know, it sounds like you're using all this cool gear. Your vocals sound amazing. Um, but you've worked with Tony Visconti and you worked with Jack White. So, I mean, what was it like? They're both kind of iconic in their own way. And Yeah, man, Tony was incredible. You know, he produced the first Semi-Precious Weapons album and we met him in 2006, I think. He came to see us play at the Ars Nova Theater in New York City and he brought two New York dolls with him when he came to see us, which was, that's how I ended up making that connection later on. But, you know, Tony was, Tony was amazing, man. I mean, I, I spent a good amount of time with Tony after we recorded, um, just kind of occasionally doing an overdub if he needed me to, but really just looking at his mixing process, you know, and just looking at the way he was kind of putting the record together and, and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, he was wonderful with David Bowie's stories and, you know, all, all of those kind of things. But, you know, what interested me most about Tony was, you know, he didn't spend hours trying to come up with some amazing sound, you know, he just sort of did what he does, which was really, you know, like he was on the ball, man. I mean, you'd go in there and you'd be listening to playback from your first take and he almost was kind of had it sort of mixed already in a lot of ways. So it was, it was really fascinating to just work with someone who'd been doing it for so long mm -hmm. that had such a, you know, a level of ease about what he was doing. In a lot of ways, you sort of, I, you know, was like 20 or 21, I think, when, when we were making that record. And I was a little nervous because I'd never been in a studio with somebody like that before, you know? But what he was doing, he made it look so easy. It kind of put you at ease too. And then we started having great conversations about guitar and about guitar sounds. And I did something at one point that sort of reminded him of this guy named Jerry Leonard, who had played with Bowie a bunch. And he also plays under the moniker Spooky Ghost for all our listeners out there. If you want to hear some really cool, beautiful, pastoral, sonic colors and lovely songs and singing as well. But yeah, check out Spooky Ghost. But yeah, that was that was a really cool one. You know, the Jack thing, I didn't get to be in the studio for that. So so um, I got to meet Jack afterwards, and he told me he really liked my guitar riff, which meant the world to me. And, uh, you know, that was a very cool thing. We got to, we went to see the Dead Weather play in Prospect Park in Brooklyn and, and got to hang out with Jack uh, after the show was over. And, and Allison as well. Like, I'm such a huge Kills fan. If anybody's out there uh, doesn't know the Kills, that's another good one to check out. But uh, yeah, lovely folks. I mean, you know, Jack White's like one of the last ones, really, um, of that generation that feels connected to that generation, you know, in a lot of ways of rock and roll music really becoming big and popular and mainstream. You know, nowadays, rock and roll is, is very much, I don't think people even use the term rock and roll anymore. I think everybody calls it rock, which I just hate. Yeah, rock sounds like some kind of, I don't know, <laughs> generic, I get it. And rock and roll too, it's confusing because when John Lennon talked about rock and roll, he felt like he was talking about the 50s. So. Sure, totally. I mean, which is, you know, well, and it does go back further than that because, you know, the real true inventor of rock and roll is to Rosetta Tharp, you know, who said rock and roll in a song uh -huh. in like 1940, I can't remember. It was sometime in the 1940s. Badass. But, you know, <laughs> 
rock and roll was invented by a queer black woman, you know, which makes so much sense when you think about it. Yeah. Oh yeah. God, her guitar playing was fantastic. And she looked amazing. And it was just like the whole orchestra came out, you know, and yeah, man, you, you know, you can't do it any better than that, you know? So I, I was funny. I was talking to Michael DeBar the other day on the phone, who of course sang in Power Station and the lead singer of Silverhead and, and played Murdoch on the show MacGyver um, in the 80s as well. <laughs> yeah, man, really cool dude. But he said, he goes, you know, man, I don't, I don't care what's happening in rock and roll today. You know, because my generation wrote the book, you know, and we did a damn good job of it. It's it, what's happening now is irrelevant. And in a lot of ways, I think he's right only because nothing is sensational anymore, you know, and, and nobody's afraid of being embarrassed. You know what I mean? Like, you know, it's like the death of embarrassment, basically, which kind of sucks because rock and roll is supposed to be a little embarrassing. You know what I mean? Like, uh -huh. if, if you can't be embarrassed, like, I don't know if you can really, you know, call yourself rock and roll because you have to kind of like create these moments of magic sort of out of nothing, you know? And mm -hmm. so you might have to look a little unbecoming to a certain member of the audience or whatever in order to achieve that it's momentary you transcend it into something beautiful like you gotta you gotta show all of that it's so easy for me to look unbecoming <laughs> <laughs> me too yeah, man like me like too instant rock cred right there right i'm the same way i hear <laughs> totally. you totally I think people are pretty tired of things being slick and cool and, you know, they want to feel connected to other humans. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that music offers in a really cool way. It offers us the chance to see all these things in each other, you know, because we are living in a time where we're recognizing the differences that we have. And that's kind of pushed to the forefront. But music is really cool because it's sort of the one time that people will sort of let their guard down a little bit, you know. So you can kind of say anything in that situation. And I feel almost a responsibility to try and say something good to people. You know what I mean? Just because, you know, I think the world is not short of opinions. That's for sure. <laughs> you know, and I, I feel like it's more illuminating for me to share a part of myself, even if it might make some people uncomfortable. I think it is more real to do that than, you know, to just find some way to be a slick entertainer. Although, you know, that does work on some level. It was interesting. We were watching the, um, have you seen the Ariana Grande documentary at all? I haven't. And it's really interesting. I'm kind of fascinated with her. Like she's a really interesting artist and has some good songs actually. Actually, I didn't realize like until I watched the documentary, but it's like she's performing, you know, huge giant place, the Enormo Dome, and she looks incredible, perfect hair and not a note out of tune, even close to out of tune, like everything, just perfect. And then it cuts to them on the plane after the show. You know, they're flying to the next show or flying home or wherever they're going. And she's just talking about her dog having diarrhea mm -hmm. for like five minutes. It's like a, my dog, here's what happened when my dog had diarrhea and it was a huge mess. And then they threw up on a, you know, piece of clothing that of mine or whatever it was. I can't remember the whole story. But anyway, <laughs> I think, you know, that's a good example of what we're talking about. You know what I mean? Like you can have the cool stylish thing, but you got to show the other part too the stylish thing kind of does fall flat. 
Yeah, that's a great point. I love that. Absolutely. And really, at this point, doing things like cool videos and all that, I think it's less for the audience and more for ourselves. You know, I mean, it's not healthy to be so externally focused, like, you know, throw this up the flagpole and how much applause did this one get? I mean, that is old school. And that's what the previous generations did. Where are you in the charts? But I never really cared that much. It was always about the music for me and being proud of something that I'd done and and being excited about the next thing and how it could be better. And, you know, to me, that's where the juice is. That's where the fuel is. I mean, you know, I mean, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. And, And to that point, you have to think about it too, in terms of, you know, what, how do you reach people nowadays? And what does it take to reach people nowadays? And time and time again, you know, as anyone who's trying to post anything on social media will find out the answer oftentimes is money. The more money you have, the more visible you are. And I have situations where I have peers, you know, friends of mine here in Nashville, other artists, you know. And I remember one time my buddy Curtis, who makes all my music videos, um, he was making a music video for another artist who was much more famous than I am, but in my peer group. And he told me what the budget for the music video was. And the budget for one music video for that person, who was on a similar size label as me, like not a huge major label or anything, but the budget for one music video was the entire marketing budget for my whole album. Mm. I'm not even in the game at that point. You know what I mean? This person's making a $50,000 music video, and I have $50,000 to tell everybody that I possibly can about my record, you know, and that's it. So, you know, when you think about it in, in those terms, it is just a silly game. And it is about pay to play and and that kind of stuff. And like, you know, how affected, how sad am I supposed to be that somebody didn't spend as much money on me as as got spent on somebody else? I just don't give a shit about that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? It's just a waste of time. So I would rather focus on what kind of outfit do I want to make today or, you know. um, What kind of outfit I want to make? Do you mean like so or? Yeah, I made the better vest that's on the cover of my album. Oh, that's awesome. Well, that's a good footnote. I love yeah. that. Yeah, I made the I made the the clothes that yes. I wore on the previous. That two. cool jacket with the reflections on it. Yeah, I made the clothes that I wore on the Silver Tears. Yeah, that's amazing. It's a beautiful cover too. Love Thank it. Thank you. That's so great. Yeah, I was a bit of a seamstress. My great grandmother used to sew things, and that's how she made money. And so. It's been my blood a little bit. I made my kids capes with to be magicians. Oh, I love it. Who made your hat, by the way? Nick Fouquet. Fantastic. And I'm really due for a new one because I got this in 2015 or 14 and the seams are coming out. <laughs> but it's my favorite hat. And I think, oh, I should just get another one in another color. It looks so good Thank on you, you too. It's a great chapeau. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. So that's cool that you make your own stuff. That must be really satisfying. Did you make all the like quilty things behind you or? No, that one was um, a quilt that my roommate's grandmother actually made. Yeah, I've never tried to make like a blanket or anything like that, but that would that would be fun. I would do that. I would do I would like, you know, maybe cut up a bunch of old t-shirts or something like that would be yeah. part of my. <laughs> that's awesome. So when you um I can just go off on a whole tangent on this. When when you um when you're making something like a vest or are you, 
are you using patterns? Are you doing it just totally from your mind and taking clothes that you own from measurements and things like that? Yeah, I compare everything to stuff that I already have. Um, yeah. With that vest, I had to, I did have to get those letters custom made. And this wonderful lady in somewhere, in, I think she's in Kansas City, Missouri, makes all kinds of different letters. Um, I think she mainly does it for like high school band jackets and, mm -hmm. and sports jackets and stuff like that. So my request was a little more sparkly <laughs> I think than her normal uh right. her, she did such a great job with it she's she's really talented she sewed them on for you she sewed the letters oh, and so then sent them to me and then I sewed them on after it. receiving them that's really cool I love that. Yeah. So when you're doing something like that, this is a question. To be an artist isn't just make records. You know, it used to be make records, go on tour, talk to people about your record. But now it seems that being an artist has to do with, I do all these different things. Like I'm into sewing, you know, I'm into painting, I'm oh. into doing podcasts. It seems like being an artist nowadays is not about one thing. It's about having a layered point of view and interest in lots of things. And it almost seems like that makes makes it more interesting because if you go on Spotify and there's a new record and you listen to the record and then there's someone else's new record, but the more you know about a human, the more it stands out to you when you're listening to someone's music. I agree. And I think oftentimes one art form informs the next. I think there's something to be learned about pulling a needle and thread through a buttonhole yeah. um, that you can apply to songwriting. Yeah. And it's, you know, it reminds me of, you know, Joni Mitchell was a painter, really. And did I think even one of her self-portraits is on one of the covers of her later period records. But I think you see, I can look at her painting and find similarities in the way she's approaching that to the way that she's approaching songs and singing and performing. So I think there are parallels that you can draw in those things. And it's kind of like maybe the shower principle a little bit, you know, where it's like, if you take your mind off of the thing that you're trying to do, more creativity will sort of come to you as a result of focusing yeah. on something else for a minute. So it's a good habit to get into other interests. <laughs> you, just, you just said, I think there are good parallels you can draw, you know. <laughs> <laughs> See, there you go. Nice. We're already writing this. Yeah, you probably don't know this, but Joni Mitchell drew the cover of my last record, but she drew it when I was 11 and gave it to me as a little girl. And I've had it here for years. And I just said, this has to be the cover of my record. So I love that. That yeah. is so cool. I did you see her at a concert or did you just meet her randomly? She was backstage at one of my mother's concerts when I was wow. a little girl. And she drew a picture of me and my little sister and gave it to us. And I didn't want to just use it. So I got in touch with her, not her, but her people said, have this drawing. I'd really like to use it for my album, you know, but I want her blessings. And I heard back right away. I was like, somebody pinched me, you know, just jumping up and down. It was so exciting. And it's beautiful. It's so simple. It's such a simple drawing. I love it so much. And I know that she does perceive herself as an artist. Right. And, yeah. And, yeah. and in fact, there's this book, you know, about a movement she was part of. I mean, she was really part of a, a movement of painters at the time she came up. So, Absolutely. yeah, sometimes the things that people are most famous for are not necessarily the things that, you know, move them the most. I mean, Chrissy Hines said that the only reason she wanted to do music is she wanted to have people listen to her so she could tell them not to eat meat. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> that She's so her. cool. Yes. Very God, cool. I love her. 
that was her passion. You know, yeah, I like to play in a rock and roll band, but I really got to get people to stop killing animals and eating them. That was was the thing. So yeah, it's, it's good to develop all these things. And what I wanted to ask you is during this time, like, so you're so proactive. I can just see from all the work that you've done and the moving around, you know, when I'm doing something that isn't music, there's this constant feeling like, oh, I should be, I should be making music. I should be writing a song. I should be in the studio. I should be, you know, to actually do something else, like write a poem or sew something or, you know, edit a video. It's really time consuming. Like any art form, you need to be in it. You can't like be concentrating on something else and do good art. You have to be present and almost talking to it saying, hey, what do you need? Like, what can I give you? And it's so against our pre-pandemic. Go, go, go. That feeling of I should be, I'm missing out. I'm getting, you know, this phrase, I'm not getting anything done. Get, what am I supposed to be getting done? What does that mean? No, I think that's a really good point. I mean, you know, I like the Buddha, the Buddhism thought about life, you know, as a river. On one bank is pain, on one bank is pleasure. You kind of want to just keep floating down the river, you know. I really approach creativity that way too. I don't think I've ever sat down and said, okay, it's time to write some songs for my album. I just kind of write songs, you know, and, you know, amongst other things, obviously, but I just kind of write songs and I do it all the time and I do it in my mind, in line at the grocery store or, you know, waiting in the doctor's office or wherever I am. If I have a spare minute, you know, there's all those little times in life where you're just sort of waiting, you know, and and you can't really do anything about it. And like everybody just pulls out their phone in that moment. And I just kind of hate that. So I'm just kind of like, what can I do that is in service to something like that renews my energy and my spirit? And for me, it's coming up with a cool little lyric that makes me laugh or whatever. I mean, sometimes they never even turn into songs. It's just a momentary thing you thought of at the grocery store that made you giggle and it just got you through the day a little bit, you know, and that's fine too. I'm cool with that too. But I think when you're just constantly thinking in those terms, or even a lot of times too, I'll imagine myself writing a song. Mm -hmm. I won't even actually write a song in my mind, but I'll imagine what it would feel like if I was writing a song or whatever. And that work, it just keeps you in a place of having the creative flow going. I think we all know that place that you can get to in your mind as a songwriter, like it's a double-edged sword because you're keeping your mind flowing. So you're just constantly running and running and running. But if you're not careful, it can run into places where like, you can be, you know, kind of out in the wilderness all of a sudden and like, how did I get here? And why am I thinking about this terrible thing? Like, (laughs) I would never think about this normally or whatever, you know, it can throw you off. So I have to, you know, do it more kind of nonchalant. And I think that also what's good about that for me is it kind of takes the pressure off of me to write anything great, you know? Totally. And you don't know what's great until after the fact anyway. You never know. You can sense it. I don't know. There's something in this. I'm not sure what it is, but you really don't ever know till later and you have that objectivity. Yeah, I've always said this, the muse or the creativity thing, it's like a little kid. Kids hate it when you run up to them, need they don't like when you need them, you know? And I feel like creativity is the same. It's almost like you kind of gotta be a little sly with it and go, hey, yeah, I see you're in the room. I see (laughs) hello little idea. And you can't get too excited or it goes, nah 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 nah. 
okay, you can't have me. <laughs> Especially when there's some ego agenda attached, like, oh, wait a people see how cool I am with this idea. And then it just goes, oh, screw you. You're a boring <laughs> I'm running out of the room. You can't have me. <laughs> totally. No, that's such a funny and great way to look at that. It is a lot like a child. And I think that's why maybe for me, keeping myself in that childlike state when I'm trying to be creative of just being curious and, and not trying to, you know, define myself as a this singer or a that singer, you know, to me, it just makes the work more interesting. And like, that's what I want to do is be interested in what I'm doing. I feel like there's nothing worse than like somebody that is up on stage performing and you can tell they're not interested in what they're doing. Yeah. yeah. Why put anybody through anything that you yourself can hardly stop? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Own it and believe it. Yes. So I just want to ask you about the streets of Galilee because it was off the normal trajectory for you to do this country thing. How did that come about? I wrote that song, you know, right when I moved to New York. I think this is probably pretty obvious, but I had been deep, deep in the Martin Scorsese documentary, No Direction Home, you know, studying Bob and, but also studying Ginsburg, you know, a lot of that kind of writing, you know, you're just tapping into, you know, whatever comes up that sounds interesting and you just write yeah. it down and you don't know if it makes any sense or not, but that's not exactly the point, you know? And it was really an exercise in trying to find my voice as a songwriter. Interestingly enough, it was just one that kind of stuck around and worked and people really liked. I mean, even to the point where this guy named Pat Green, who's a big country star in Texas, cut it on a major label album that he made here in Nashville. So, it, you know, it's interesting how that song has continued to stay. It's so funny. I actually got a Lucinda Williams tour off of that song. She and, and Tom came to a record release show that I was doing, mm -hmm. but they'd been, ha they'd been having dinner um, and they weren't planning to go. We didn't know each other at all. The waiter at the restaurant suggested they go. They just said to the waiter, hey, is there anything happening tonight? And, he, and the waiter went, well, actually, my buddy Aaron is playing over at the Third and Lindsley. You should go check it out. And sure enough, they came. And Lou just loved that song. That's so cool. That's amazing with Lou and that your friend did that. You went on tour with Lucinda? Yeah, we did. We got to play the Fillmore two nights with her in San Francisco, which was absolutely incredible. Was and... Pete Norton playing? Oh, yeah. yeah. He's my buddy. We've done some touring together, and he's played on my records. Man, I love Butch. I think I knew him originally from that band Eels, right. but I also am a huge fan of his playing with Rufus Wainwright and just consummate musician, beautiful guy, does excellent yoga. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great that you did that. He's got some good hats too, but oh he's yeah, got some he's great got hats. hats. I, I wanted to ask you your two albums, Karma for Cheap and Karma for Cheap Reincarnated. What is the difference between those two? Um, slightly, some of this, they're same songs, but different timings, different order. It's all the same songs except for one. Um, on Karma for Cheap, there's a, a song called Dream Dreamer that's sort of an acoustic kind of crazy psychedelic ballad. And the point of the reincarnated record was to show more of how these songs were conceived from the beginning versus what they became. Because Karma for Cheap was sort of all about my road band and us playing together on a record, which we'd never done before. So the reincarnated version is what it was like when I was writing these songs by myself in my bedroom. You know, so it's very quiet. You know, Karma for Cheap 
is really loud and fuzzy and every song just kind of comes at you, even the softer ones. Um, so I guess a little bit of the impetus for doing the acoustic versions as well was I also still do a fair amount of touring that way. And people are always asking, like, do you have a record that sounds like this? And I never, never did. So it was, it was a great way to sort of show people another side of those songs, but then also to, you know, have something that was kind of representative of what I'm capable of doing, me and a guitar or me and a piano or, you know, whatever it is. So That's great. That makes so much sense. And I, I just love the concept of reincarnated. It's a great way to put it. it it's not like unplugged. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Completely cool. And um, BP Fallon, you want to talk a little bit about him? Because he's such a character. I mean, what a crazy rock and roll history he has. I mean, insane rock and roll history. Got on the boat, got on the ferry when he was 16 years old from Dublin, took it to Liverpool, walked over to Brian Epstein's office, knocked on the door and said, I would like to work at Apple Records, please. <laughs> Brian Epstein looked at him and said, well, uh... We're getting some weed for Paul McCartney, and he's like really paranoid about his drugs being, you know, mishandled or whatever. If you'd be willing to test him out, <laughs> we'll hire you. <laughs> so he got a job as Paul McCartney's weed tester. You know, not a bad way to start. No. Became a radio personality. Uh, became a, you know, a teacher really for a lot of bands. I was talking to Day Bar about this too when we were on the phone the other day because Silverhead, you know, their first big break was a tour with Deep Purple. They came to America with Deep Purple. So they get to New York, mm -hmm. check into their hotel, go down to see the New York Dolls play, and they come back to the hotel. The hotel's on fire. The whole hotel is on fire. There's all these people, you know, there's news cameras everywhere. BP sees this as a wonderful opportunity because Silverhead had a gig the next night. So he runs over, finds some ash on the ground, and puts it all over Michael DeBar's face, who's the singer, pushes him in front of the camera, and says, this man just ran back into the building and saved a cat. Oh. <laughs> and they, and they, so they're interviewing DeBar, like, wow, that's amazing, you know? And he's got an English accent, and if he looks, you know, incredible in some sort of velour something or other in snakeskin boots and... You know, um, and he's saying, yes, I did. I saved the cat. And then, uh, by the way, we're playing tomorrow night at CBGB's. And uh, <laughs> <you know? laughs> genius, that's BP. You know, he knew how to make the thing work and how to get it in front of people in a way that was, you know, that they would remember. And I remember he went on to become a DJ and do these sort of death disco nights. Him and Alan McGee, who started Creation Records, would do these um, nights of, of rock and roll music in bars. And they did it a lot in New York. And I used to go see him all the time. But, you know, he sort of taught me what rock and roll really was. Because I didn't know, honestly, you know, when he became our manager. And yeah, you know, there were certain ways I would behave sometimes or whatever, because I thought that's what you were supposed to do. And he would explain the difference and gave me a, a depth of knowledge to come from. So really cool, interesting guy. He and I we wrote the song that Jack White uh, recorded together, um, which is called I Believe in, in Elvis Presley. And I remember one time we, we had a, a gig in England. We were playing in our first gigs that we were ever doing in England, and we were playing a, a death disco night there. And BP, God bless him, he somehow convinced Kate Moss to come to our show. 
And she came and she'd stayed for the whole thing. And then she danced with all of us afterwards. And BP took pictures of the whole thing and then had the nerve to email her and ask her if he could distribute them. And she said, yes. We were on the cover of the Daily Mirror the next day. Kate Moss parties with six foot bisexual, you know, was the headline. <laughs> and our band is dancing with her. I mean, you know, that is why I think Michael DeBar says, I don't care what happens in rock and roll anymore, because nobody's trying to make moments like that, really. Yeah. Like, it's more, you know, it's different. Like, those kind of memories aren't really getting created or manufactured or whatever it is the way that they used to be. You know, you remember even the phases that artists went through, you know, Iggy and his in all white with his tinfoil hat and stuff like that before he was ever smearing the peanut butter and doing the stuff that ultimately right. kind of made him famous. But even though he wasn't famous for that, people still remember it because it was just so striking and in its own way, it probably got on some people's nerves, you know? Theater, it's spectacle. Yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah, and so what did BP say about rock and roll? You know, he, he was a mentor yeah. to other people. I never did figure out, were you with him at the Lou Reed Memorial Tribute? Clem was there and BP was yep. there with some people who he was in a band with. I remember that. I remember that happening because I remember not long after that, he and I did a... Uh, some gigs at the Crossing Border Festival in Belgium mm -hmm. together. And he was telling me all about it. But I was not there for that. Clem is another one. Like, he played on, you know, BP has a band called BP Fallon and the Bandits. In addition to all his work that he's done as a PR person and as a, you know, a I think a lot of people would probably describe him as, I don't know exactly what he does, but I know that it makes a difference kind of a thing, <laughs> you know? And so, you know, in addition to all of that, he's also an incredible artist, as it turns out, who has wonderful poetry and, and writes lines that are so interesting and funny and, and brilliant. So yeah, he is quite a character. I think he valued an attitude and a, and a sort of, he used to call it, fuck you with a smile. <laughs> I think was, you know, that he felt was important to rock and roll. But he's also so smart, you know, I think as much as he's from that generation, he's still excited to see anything that's happening today. He wants to hear the newest and the latest and the greatest and the weirdest and the loudest and the, you know, craziest and, you know, whatever he can get his hands on. So I kind of appreciate that about him. He's sort of uh, eternally sort of youthful in that way, you know, mm -hmm. he's, he's never, he's never really defined rock and roll by a on a timeline that's a healthy way to be i think so yeah, it's a good way to be i have a question i'm kind of bouncing back and forth but you know um one of my sons i mean both my sons are musicians but one of them did a similar thing with berkeley went and said no 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 i i want to be in recording studios i don't want to be waiting another year to be doing the things i can already do now i just want to go do it but what I'm wondering is sometimes people who don't go to college will feel that they missed out on this built-in community that you get when you're in college. You know, people who graduate college and then put out an EP usually have this cheering committee of all their college friends. It's like you have an instant following, you know, and you come from a place and a lot of those English musicians from, you know, the 60s went to art school and they had all yes. their art. Yeah, I'm just wondering how that maybe because you were in New York City, but was it hard to 
feel a sense of community just being like new in New York? Or was it just because you were able to be in people's bands that you plugged into their community? Like, how did you get that going for yourself? It was a challenge. I never lived anywhere long enough to felt like I came from anywhere. I was born in Wilmington, Delaware. I lived there till I was 10. We moved to San Juan Capistrano. I lived there till I was 13. We moved to New Albany, Ohio. Mm -hmm. I graduated from high school. I moved immediately to uh, Edgewater, New Jersey, lived there for six months, moved to Boston, went to Berkeley for six months, moved to New York, moved back to Columbus, Ohio briefly, and then finally back to New York again for like 10 years in 2005. You know, so it took a minute to get somewhere where I was there for more than just a couple of years, you know, and so I wasn't used to having a bunch of friends. I wasn't used to having a community of people I could rely on or whatever. I was used to being the new kid in school. And by the time I was no longer the new kid in school, we were moving to another town, you know. So in a lot of ways, I think, you know, my community building had to be based around music, which meant that I had to wait. I had to wait until there was an opportunity for me to be seen by the people that I wanted to be seen by. Because, you know, you can't just walk up to Jim Campolongo after the show and go like, man, I'm a guitar player and like, we should hang out or something, you know? Right, yeah. <laughs> be like, somebody, no, we shouldn't. <laughs> yeah, if somebody did that to you, you would just be like, uh, I don't Whoa. know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. So, you know, so that took about five years. Mm-hmm. And you know, so were you playing gigs and having trouble in the beginning populating the audience and just plowing ahead anyway? Or Well, know? wasn't really, you know, I wrote my own songs and all that, but I didn't know if they were really any good or not. So I wasn't really trying to get gigs or maybe I was afraid of the rejection. So I wasn't trying that hard to get my own gigs. But I did, I, I would find these things on Craigslist, you know, where someone would pay you a hundred bucks to go sit in the corner of the bar just play whatever you wanted to in the background while people were drinking. So I, you know, I did some stuff like that. The thing that, that was lucky that happened for me was that I met, you know, Justin Tranter through a connection of a person in Boston, not that I had met at Berkeley, a guy who ran a recording studio up there and he had recorded Justin's solo albums and Justin was wanting to not be a solo artist anymore and was wanting to be in a band. And so, you know, I had the right vibe according to this producer guy of what justin was looking for in a band member and thought we should get together and we did we got together and you know justin was a star justin was a was a a star in the in the queer scene certainly in in new york but also just building local legend in the making and so it was kind of like rem or something i mean we formed semi-precious weapons we booked our first show at the knitting factory in the main space and it was sold out. (laughs) I mean, it's just, it was, and that was just luck, you know, that was just pure complete luck that I met this guy, you know, who had this going on or whatever. And that kind of gave me, you know, a leg in because semi-precious weapons kept getting more and more famous and people started hearing about us all the time. And so suddenly I had kind of a door in because these older musicians that I really wanted to talk to, you know, the people that it was, was like Charlie Drayton. Yeah. Charlie is the coolest. So have you uh, been in touch with Charlie? Not since I lived in New York, no. Yeah. I occasionally run into him on the road or something, but uh-huh. um, 
love that dude. And, and he was very encouraging to me, you know, as a young guitar player and all that, you know, and when I finally got called to sit in with people like Adam Levy and, you know, who were the sort of cons, you know, Adam played the solo on Give Me One Reason to Stay Here by Tracy Chapman, you know, played all the guitar stuff on the first two Nora Jones records, just phenomenal musician. And so I would get called finally, like after four or five years to sit in with him and stuff. And Charlie would be there because it was the musician hang. And he would say, man, he would say, you know, when you played that solo, all of us were sitting back here talking about how that it was good. You know, you should really keep going. So, I mean, you know, that guy to me was like <laughs> on the Mount Olympus of musicians, you know, it's, he's coming from having played Keith Richards and the Expensive Winos and, you know, all this stuff that like, I just love and like played drums on Love Shack, I think even, you know, I mean, just, oh God incredible and so yeah it felt so amazing to me that charlie you know would compliment me or you know talk to me after the gig and it was like you know that was an affirmation that the work was paying off but there was more work to be done mm -hmm. you know and that if you were willing to do it you might get to hang out with these guys a little bit more yeah that's such a beautiful story it makes me happy too that my buddies are encouraging and that it means the world that's it does i think as you know when you're 20 or 21 or however old i was you know a guy like that you know saying something to you it, it does mean the world because your friends or your you know partner or your parents or your you know whoever you know can certainly be supportive and that is wonderful but i think you look to those figures in a lot of ways i mean i was trying to figure out like am i good enough you know am i good enough to really do this because this isn't easy like you know musician buddies of mine like have these like famous gigs or whatever that they do but they're not rich rock stars mm -hmm. you know they're they're working musicians just like the rest of us so it was great to be able to get around those guys too because it, it taught you a lot of lessons about what to expect coming forward like mm -hmm. you're not gonna get rich so if that's why you're doing this don't bother you know <laughs> right what I mean? jump off this train because it's not going where you would like it to go you got to be enjoying the ride Yes. Absolutely. You know, so, I was listening to, it was a song that really reminded me of Harry Nielsen on one of your records. I'll oh, I had no idea who Harry Nielsen was. I'll just be completely honest with you. Hard Life. Yeah, yeah Hard Life. That's the off, one. Off Silver Tears. Yeah, it's yeah, the opening song. Yeah. You know what's funny? When I wrote that song, people uh, were like, oh, this reminds me of this coconut. song, The Lime and the Coconut by <laughs> Harry Nilsson. And enough people said it to me to where I was just like, I gotta know. And it was like, <laughs> like discovering Harry Nilsson yeah. at that point in my life, like for the first time ever, I couldn't believe, I felt like an idiot for not knowing it before. But I was just like, oh man, this guy's, this is like a Bible, what this guy's passed down. Like yeah, these are parables I can live my life by. <laughs> yeah, but your influences are, you know, I mean, there's all this glam stuff, Mark Bolin and Bowie, but there's also this Dr. John thing, kind of more of a Southern boogie woogie bluesy thing. So it's, it's a really cool mix of influences. I love it. Thank you. Yeah. Well, man, all I want to say is your record is great. Can you talk a little bit about where you made it and, and how you made it? Some of my buddies, you know, Scott Sachs and yeah. Jeff Trott. Yeah. Absolutely. So we made the record in a studio in East Nashville called Make Sound Good Studios, which is a converted old sort of guest cottage, basically. But it's in this like wooded setting. So you do your tracks and then 
you know, the control room door leads outside. So you just open the door and you go outside mm -hmm. and it's kind of like being, you know, in like Snow White or something. Like there's just critters running around and <laughs> birds chirping and you're listening to your playback. And it's a really great, you know, experience working over there. My buddy Gregory Latimer co-produced the record and engineered the record with me um, and co-wrote the song Up All Night with me. And, you know, really was, was a, a creative force of his own on this record. I mean, he had a band called Thin Lizard Dawn that was on a major label in the 90s and just made really weird, cool, you know, strange but beautiful melodic pop rock music. So he really, he and I are super simpatico in that way. We just are coming at it from the same kind of place. And so it's a really natural fit. And what's cool about Greg's thing, he doesn't have a ton of gear, you know, it's a pretty simple setup. So a lot of times, you know, whatever you're hearing is a really just super honest interpretations of what's really there, you know? Um, and I like that. I like, uh, some people love to walk into a playback and have it already sound kind of mixed, but I think there's a lot of things that you can disguise with effects and with compression and with all of these things that I would rather not hear if I'm trying to judge it based on what it is, you know? Mm -hmm. So I really like that simplicity. Greg is kind of a best kept secret, really. He produced an album, the very first Albert Hammond Jr. record, who of course is uh, in The Strokes, but it's called Yours to Keep, and it's a really great Albert. It might be my favorite Albert Hammond Jr. record, actually, because it's the weirdest one. And not a lot of people know about Greg. So I'm always trying to encourage more folks to reach out to him, to work with him, because he's really collaborative and, and just a beautiful spirit and positive and encouraging, and but also honest and is you know one of those people that gets up every day and, and just wants to put something beautiful out into the world. And um, whether it's a, a tweet or a <laughs> you know uh or a song you know uh, yeah. he lives his life that way so yeah gregory latimer is really wonderful to work that's with that's great that's a great tip good to know so are you happy living in east nashville there you've been there seven eight years now almost yeah it's crazy god i can't believe it's been that long but i love nashville i think nashville is obviously Everybody thinks of country music immediately, but I'm sure you've, you know, spent plenty of time here where it's like you realize, man, this is, you know, so much is happening. So many different kinds of music and different kinds of musicians. And one of my new favorites from here is I've just gotten into their music. Have you heard of the rap girl at all? Mm -mm. <laughs> She's so awesome. And that's that's her uh, handle on Instagram and, and all that stuff. Highly recommend The Rap Girl. Very talented young woman at that, for sure. Well, this has been delightful. I'm so happy to meet you, and this has been an amazing conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for all the great questions and keeping it so real. Like, I so appreciate where you're coming from as an artist, and I really relate to it. And it's been really cool to find out that there are people like us out there who really do just care about the music part and, and doing it because we love it and like aren't so hung up on the industry or whatever, you know. One of the reasons why I really like this guy, um, do you know the singer Todd Snyder at all? Do you know him? I don't, but the name is familiar. Yeah. He's kind of like a modern day John Prine kind of guy. In uh, fact, he was on Prine's label, Oh Boy Records, for a little while. Um, but, you know, he's very much 
much that way. He even has a song called Hey Pretty Boy, Go Back to Franklin about modern day country music stars. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of inside if people don't live in Nashville and don't really know what Franklin is. But exactly. It's kind of the, how could you describe it? It's beautiful, more pastoral, right? It's, it's the Pleasantville of, of Nashville, sort of, yeah. in a way. Like, it, it's this kind of very idealistic environment. It looks like a giant college campus. All the houses look really similar and like the shopping centers are really clean and like, you know, you never see any trash anywhere or anything like that or a homeless person or anything. You know, it's it's a it's a place where I guess, you know, you go after you've become like really big and popular in the music business. So you go out there and buy a giant house and that way no one can find you anymore. Um, right. I get where it's coming from. I lived in London for 10 years and one of the things that did drive me crazy there, I mean, not that it's just there, but there seemed to be this judgment of anybody once they were successful. Like once you're mm. successful, you can do no right. <laughs> yeah. That's it's, very English though, isn't it? A very English thing. Like you have to be starving and you have to be at those, you know, really gnarly beginnings for anyone yeah. to think you're cool. And then once you finally crack it and lots of people want you and you go to America and have a tour, suddenly like the people in your own hometown think that you're terrible. And <laughs> and they'd write a song like, go back to Franklin <laughs> pretty much, you know? Yeah. I think his sentiment is coming from the opening line of that song is, nobody wants to talk about the music business. Yeah, that's true. That's a thing. You know, and that's really where he's coming from. You know, all these guys are sitting around in groups of 7 million or whatever, writing songs all day long, talking about their boats and how many points they have on this album and, you know, all this. It's a whole culture that exists here in Nashville. And it's incredibly, you know, one track minded, I think, you know, there's so much more to music than, you know, how many cuts you had on the latest, you know, Kenny Chesney record or whatever, you know. Right. I totally get that. And and it's really the difference of being a songwriter and an artist, because not to say songwriters aren't artists, because there's a lot of artistry and writing really great songs. Yeah. But it is more of a business tract, you know, yeah. and, and the way you feel your success is somebody cut your song. And it, for us, it's a different place that we measure. Am I getting it right? Am I in the juice right now? You know, and it's not going to be the chart. That's right. not where we're going to find it. But yeah, sure. I totally get that. So yeah, it's good that you've got a, a community there. And uh, I hope yeah. that you'll be out and about doing things and that it won't be a whole other year before. What is the label that this one is on? Are you on a label with this? The, yeah, this one's on a record label called New West Records. Oh, uh, great. Yeah. And yeah, they're a really cool little label here in Nashville. You know, it's like they're very personal, you know, because it's not a huge operation. So you get to know, you know, everybody in the office and, and all that kind of stuff. And it's and I, I like that. It definitely feels like you're not just one of like thousands of artists that they had to have a phone call with that day that they had five minutes to deal with or whatever. Right. You know? There's something you said earlier that I wanted to say something to you. Yeah. I unsolicited you had said I really hope I get to do this for the rest of my life sort of thing and and I wanted to tell you in that moment of course you're going to do this for the rest of oh. your life because I mean that's that's the thing from the record company era that I feel like I used to be mistaken about I used to think I was an artist because I had a record deal and I never felt like I would do anything different you know and then what <laughs> I found is that 
when all the shit hit the fan and there was nothing. <laughs> I liked being a cottage industry and making my songs and doing my records and doing what turned me on. So yeah, you don't need permission to do this for the rest of your life. <laughs> I love that. That's so cool. And thank you for saying that. I, you're, I think you're absolutely right. And isn't it funny how, you know, sometimes you, you feel like, you know, you need certain things to be a certain way in order to be a certain thing or whatever. Um, but you, you know, you, you really, as time goes on, you learn, like, as you're saying, like, you can do all that for yourself. You really don't need anybody else to do any of that for you. You know, you yeah. can, you really can, you know, validate yourself and perceive yourself as an artist without ever having to involve anybody else. And I think that realization you know, is is a really powerful one. And I think a lot more artists are having that, even really big successful ones, you know, that are choosing just to not have a record deal because they kind of aren't interested in sort of like having this whole committee involved of like, you know, they would rather just make the records and, and put them out and go on tour or not go on tour, whatever they do. And I think that's really cool. I think it's one of the best parts uh, of sort of what the new music business has become, which is this thing where, you know, a lot of the stuff that I see, you know, critics that I really love, like Ann Powers or somebody like that, you know, she's writing about tons of stuff where the people don't have record deals. Mm -hmm. I think that's really cool, man. You know, it's yeah. like it's kind of leveled the playing field in a way. You yeah, know? totally. And also, you know, self-proclaiming. You, yeah. you are because you decide you are, you know? Yeah, exactly. So much power in that. That's really a good, good way to think about it. Awesome. Well, I am so delighted to meet you. And I'm also a little inspired about my sewing machine in the closet. <laughs> What kind do you have? Is it a singer? Uh, I think it's a singer. It's been in the closet for years. I just wrote this story recently about my childhood. And in it, one of the things I said is I have committed to memory a pattern for making flared pants with an elastic waistband. Because I remember with my mom putting the trousers, folding them a half, tracing them, you know, a couple of inches out from the edge. I remember where the seams went. I remember the whole thing. I remember getting really cool fabrics and it's in my mind. And I'm thinking, I should just get the sewing machine out, go to the fabric store, get some really badass cool fabrics and just like, yeah. you know, factory it up, just make a whole bunch of them. Why the heck not? <laughs> I mean, it's, I feel like for what we're dealing with right now, like that kind of stuff can actually really be renewing and like, you know, energizing because it's like you've created, you know, you've spent your day instead of watching the news or, you know, worrying about, you know, when are we going to be able to get the vaccine or whatever? It's like, instead you've spent your day looking at these amazing, beautiful fabrics and then like coming home and touching these amazing, beautiful fabrics and laying them out on your table and <laughs> tracing and cutting. Ah, oh, so I mean, what a, a while. what yeah. a much more enjoyable way to spend your time. <laughs> I think. Yeah, I wish I was better at it. I look at old pictures of Twiggy and some of the things she wore. Oh. I want that. God. I want that vest. I want those trousers. Yes. And I, I yes. Somebody please just make me that. But I, I don't know how to do it. And clothes aren't made well that much anymore. I mean, you I agree. Things are falling apart, and they all look the same. I mean, not all of them, but. Anyway. A lot, yeah. Yeah, so I like the originality. Well, I won't keep you anymore because we've chatted for a while and I'll be editing instead of sewing for sure. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> but you know, you you were talking about you get song ideas. Did you ever write a song with the like the metaphor of stitching and sewing and like all of that? Oh yeah. Well, if, you know, something came to me the other day. I wear my art on my sleeve. Oh yeah, yeah. Um. So I'm, I I don't know if that's a lyric or just a idea or whatever that I had, but I've been thinking a lot about something like that. I did write a whole verse about pants. The song's not about pants, but the, the chorus of the song is actually, it's just like me to be someone else. <laughs> oh, that's such a good one. <laughs> and I, I, so I was writing a bunch of stuff around that and we'd had snowstorms in Nashville and I went to the coffee shop for the first time in like Every five does. days. Do you go to Ugly Yeah, I do go to Ugly Mugs. Yeah, I live right around the corner. I can walk there in like two seconds. Yeah. And yeah, I was just looking at what people were wearing and, and I wrote, I went down to the corner to get a cup of beans, tall and skinny dwellers in their skinny jeans, pants that were cool when Jack White was thinner on a man with a tan in the dead of winter. <laughs> Man, a man with a tan in the dead of winter. Oh boy, where did he get that tan? I wonder. You know, I so I, ho I hope he has like a tanning bed at home or something, because I'd hate to think that people are still going to tanning salons. Just a scary thought. So I just have a question. It's kind of embarrassing. What is it? Not a gender specific way to say someone who sews. Like I only know the word seamstress. Oh God. And uh, it, so, and and can you believe that? Like, it's like you say, doctor. You think of a man. You say someone who sews. You say seamstress. You know, immediately it's gender specific, which is so messed up. So that is so. What's someone who sews that does not have a gender attached to it? What would that be? Like seamstress is as lame as actress. You know, actress <laughs> totally called actresses. You know, they're acting an yeah. actor. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, couturier maybe or something like that. I mean, that that does tend to, you know, imply c couture. Um, but um, yeah, we'll we'll get comments and answers, or, or I'll research it. But it's a really good question. Yeah, all the things in life that I bump into where I realize. Oh, hold on a second. I just discovered another place I've been brainwashed, you know? Oh, I know. I know. Same. I'm caught. You know, I like feel if I ever see the phrase, well, we could do this and you kill two birds with one stone. I go, wait, I don't want to kill any birds. You know? <laughs> My friend Tommy always says, get stoned and kill two birds. Right. I don't get what it means. <laughs> I can't what it means either. I think I think he's I think he's just trying to be silly or whatever. But uh, anyway, I'll just go on naturing forever. But it's great to meet you and likewise. And good luck with everything. And I'm definitely going to be telling people to listen to your record and get your record. Thank you so much. I sure do appreciate it. And thanks for having me again and all the great questions and thoughts and all oh, that yeah. stuff. Thank you for doing it. You do. Take care, Aaron. Bye bye. Drag queen dream. I want to thank my guest, singer-songwriter Aaron Lee Tajdan, for this insightful and inspiring conversation about living a creative life. Join us next time for a conversation with John Platt, otherwise known as Big John, chairman and CEO of Sony ATV, the world's largest publishing company. John is a mover and shaker, and talking to him, I learned how he lives his life and career by some guiding principles that have earned him the respect of his peers and propelled him to where he is today. 
This was a rare opportunity to hear stories and insights from his over 25-year career in music publishing, which includes stories of New York's state of mind, Alicia Keys, Waterfalls by TLC, Jay-Z, Beyonce, and more. If you're enjoying these episodes, please leave us a review or follow us on Podbean, Apple Music, YouTube, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you stream. Thanks for listening. See you next time.